You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Hey, did you know that children learn by imitating their parents? In fact, we all learn by imitation. It's an incredible thing, and it ranges from speech and social skills to, to habits, facial expressions, so on and so forth. Children learn by imitation. It can be really fun to watch kids imitate their parents, and sometimes not so much fun, because it can be scary, depending on what the parent does or says or how they react, right? Am I right? So this can definitely be both a... Uh, a joy and a daunting reality because the kids are always watching and always listening, right, parents? <laughs> always ready to, you know, repeat whatever they see or hear mom or dad say or do. This week I was having a moment of frustration and I was uh, taking something to put back into the fridge. forgot which day it was. On my way there, I dropped part of it in, in the sink, right? And my reaction immediately was, oh, come on, Ovi, right? And then I see Taya turn around because she was sitting at the kitchen table, and she just repeated after me, imitating me, come on, Ovi. <laughs> it was so cute, but at the same time, oh, no. <laughs> She's really picking it up now. Good thing I didn't say anything else or anything bad, right? So whether we like it or not, children, um, children, see children do. There were so many moments of Taya actually imitating us this week, uh, Emma and I, as I was getting ready for the message, and I'm assuming I was probably more aware of it because I was getting ready for, for this message, because the message starts with, therefore, imitate God as beloved children, right? But let me give you another example with Taya imitating us this week. We were praying together the other night, and maybe some of you may have noticed this, uh, you know, about me, that when we when, you know, someone else is praying, I'm super active, and I say stuff like, mm-hmm, yes, 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 Lord, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I say stuff like that, because I'm, I want to get into it, right? And as Emma was praying, we noticed Taya doing the same thing, mm-hmm, mm, mm-hmm, yes, it was so adorable, it was like, yes, more of that, please, you know? So whether we like it or not, children see, children do, and this is a reality for all of us, we learn by imitation, it's a way of life. Sociologists and psychologists have noted that one of the most significant ways that we learn in life is by imitating someone else. We learn by imitation. So it's not surprising then that we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and Apostle Paul starts by saying, hey, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He gives us the picture of children imitating their parents. Just a quick recap, we've been traveling from chapter 1, right? And today we find ourselves in chapter 5. And if you remember, Paul's letter is pretty much set up in two halves. It's split in two halves. And the first half, Ephesians 1 to 3, talks about a new life. Uh, it talks about our new identity in Christ. It talks about the work of the gospel, the work of God in, in our life, the work of the good news in Jesus Christ. And when that truth enters our life and we put our trust in Jesus alone, we have a new life now. We have a new identity, right? And if you remember right at the beginning of chapter 1, Paul began by saying, hey, you are chosen by the Father. 
Jesus saved you. Jesus, you are loved by the Son, and then you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul unpacks this beautiful reality of our new identity in Christ. And then as we hit chapter 4, something shifts. Paul's letter shifts a bit because the second half of the letter talks about the fact that with a new identity in Christ comes a new way of life. And Paul starts to get really practical on how we ought to live our lives now that we're in Christ. And that's what Paul is concerned with here in chapter 5 too. That our identity in Christ has to have a major impact on our everyday living. And if it doesn't, hmm, are we really saved? So he says here in chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. So this begs the question. How do we imitate God then? How do we do it? Okay, great. It's a command. Okay, right on, Paul. So how do we do it? How do we practically imitate God? And this is what he says in verse 2. And walk in love. Oh, it's right there. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first reality The first way we imitate God in our new position in Christ, as we become and we start to live out who we are in Jesus, the first thing we do is loving selflessly like Jesus. He gives us a practical way on how to imitate God. Loving selflessly like Jesus. That's what Apostle Paul describes here. Imitate God by loving like Jesus selflessly. Now, love is a word that's so misused in our culture, isn't it? Not only misused, but conflated, deflated, it's blended in with so many different meanings, right? And we don't even know exactly what it means because it means so many things. And one of the avenues uh, culture uses to to do that, to deflate it and to to conflate it or does that through is is media. Media is one of those avenues, right? I mean, love is a word that has been reduced or favorite pair pair of shoes or favorite ice cream or a one-night stand. Those are all kind of, oh, I love those things. Okay, great. What is love then? Because I'm confused now. But love is so much deeper than our culture makes it out to be. You see the picture and standard of love that is given here in our passage. Paul says, live a life of love, walk in love, and the standard that we're given here is just as Christ loved us. This begs the question, how did Jesus love us then? I I, I need to know that, right? Well, the verse says he gave himself up for us and he laid down his life for us. And then Paul ends the verse with a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's kind of weird. Maybe. Not sure if you know, but the picture that we have here is the Old Testament picture of the sacrificial system, this fragrant offering. If you remember in the Old Testament, God had designed that the way his people would approach him was by offering sacrifices on the altar. So they would come to the temple, they would come to the tabernacle, and they would have this altar where they would uh, basically barbecue an animal as a sacrifice to God. And this, this was a way of saying life has to be sacrificed or laid down in order to have my sin forgiven, in order to pay for my sin, in order to make a way for me to approach God and to be made right with God. Life needs to be sacrificed. And so what, what, what we have in Jesus is both priests, and sacrifice. He offered himself up as that much needed sacrifice for the sins of his people to save us, 
to forgive us and to make us uh, and to make a way back into the presence of God, to bring us back into the presence of God. And so he comes to the cross, and there at the cross we have the most clear, the most beautiful, and at the same time the most tragic picture of love in all of history. Jesus dies in our place to pay the price that we owed because of our sin and rebellion. And when Paul says it's a fragrant offering to God, it can be pretty confusing, isn't it? Like, has the cross picture ever been troubling to you? Maybe not. Maybe if you're born in a, in a Christian home, maybe not so much. That God would allow his son to die to be crushed for you and for me? And some critics of Christianity will say that's a cosmic picture of child abuse. That can't fly. That God would allow his son to die, right? That, and then you look at what Paul says, that this picture is a fragrant offering, is an aroma at the nostrils of God. It can be a little confusing. The heart of the father is broken for sure because his son is being crushed or was crushed at the cross for sure. But his son is willingly laying down his life for you and me. But through his sacrifice, we are forgiven. Through his sacrifice, we are saved and we are made right. And that is a fragrant aroma to God at the nostrils of God. Because this is a picture of smoke, of incense going up from the altar of Christ, sacrificing for us and reaching the heavens. Because God looks at his son now and he says the debt has been paid. Your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. The, the curtain has been torn in two, and now you can approach me. Without the sacrifice of animals, you, you now have full access into the presence of God. And by the way, God rose him from the dead too. That's what the fragrant offering to God means. I, I literally just scratched the surface, maybe not even. So Paul says here in Ephesians 5.1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, notice the phrase, as beloved children, when he tells us to be people who love like Jesus selflessly, and that's the first way we imitate God in, he's not saying do something that you've never experienced in your life, that you've never seen in your life ever before. He's saying you've experienced and seen this at the cross of Jesus Christ. It should be the center of your life. You've experienced the most beautiful and fullest picture of selfless love in Christ. So go and do the same. Go on. Imitate that. Whoa. <laughs> That's a tall order. And I imagine for parents that this would be the most beautiful thing for them to see their children imitate them in something like this, something beautiful, right? And not when they mess up, not when they see something wrong and the children hear and imitate that, but it's when the kids take a picture of love and they reciprocate that with a younger sibling and you hear them say the, the very words that you said, right? And that's the picture of imitating God with selfless love that we're given here in Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God, beloved children. Let's not miss one big point here, church, that we are loved this morning, that you are called, if you're in Christ, you are called a beloved children. And just let that sink in. Just let it sink in. And church, let me just state the obvious here, that as we think about being imitators of God, Part of what is required to imitate God is that we should be observers of God. 
watchers of God. And just as our children watch us all day long, and sometimes you think that they're not watching, yes, they're watching. In the same way, let's watch our father's every move, and, and that takes time. And that takes effort, and that takes the inquisitive faith of a child. That takes us setting aside time from our hectic and busy schedules and sit before our Father and immerse ourselves in that kind of love that He has for us. So may I suggest, Summit Church, that if we are to take seriously Paul's command here in this passage to be imitators of God, that we need to set regular time to watch God, to watch our Father. In prayer, in the Word, that's how we watch Him to watch the way he's at work, to, to read and study his word, to see his story unfold and his relentless love for us from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of a God who loves selflessly, who lays down his life in pursuing us. So church, let's become observers of God. Just another way of saying it. We say this every weekend, I hope. And in turn, imitators of God. And first, just as Apostle Paul says, first by loving like Jesus selflessly. Loving like Jesus selflessly. The next way we, that we are called to be imitators of God that we have in this passage is to simply live holy lives. Just to live holy lives or live sacredly, however you want to say it. We're called to love selflessly like Jesus and then we're called to live holy lives. Let's look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let me just pause here for a second and rem remind us that Paul over and over tells us that if we are to put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saints. We're called saints. And, and when God looks at us, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus, right? And he says that we are holy. You are set apart. You are, you are sacred. You are saints. You're a saint. And that's the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And then here we come in Ephesians chapter 5, and if we have been given this position of being holy and set apart, we in turn ought to live like it, pursuing holy living, pursuing holy lives. Here, where does Paul point us when it comes to living sacredly? Where does, he, where does he point us in a practical way? To our sexuality. That's the first thing that pops up. Interesting, Paul. Then it comes as a warning to us as we live out our new identity in Christ because our culture will look at Christianity and more specifically, culture will look at uh, the biblical view of sexuality and it would say, no way, no, 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 no. That's way too constrictive. Nope. That's devaluing of so many in our, in our society today. The biblical view of sexuality is not quite fitting with our worldview. Nah, nah. It's primitive. We've evolved, okay? I want to be very clear with what I'm going to say here, as, as clear as clear can be, because here at Summit, man, we take a very clear approach when it comes to the Word, and I... I like to think that we do a pretty good job at that. But, but even when it comes to the biblical view of sexuality, culture will point fingers at the church. And I'm the first to say that in general, the church hasn't really handled the issues of sexuality with, on one hand, with faithfulness to God in the Bible. 
And on the other hand, uh, with love and grace towards people. Okay? There's a lot to learn there. But scripture is clear that sexuality is to be experienced between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. That's it. And anything outside of those parameters is not the way God designed it to be. It's just not. And culture points fingers at the church and says, that's too constraining. That's not relevant. But here is the reality of it. The culture's view of sexuality is the one that devalues sex. Their view of of sexuality devalues what God has designed, if you think about it. Because God designed sexuality, not the other way around. So he would have the definition, the, the parameters for that. And as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul says there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality. We are called, right, as the church to keep sexuality sacred, to keep it set apart for what God designed it to be. And this does not mean that the church is comprised of a bunch of bigots and people who are stuck up and devaluing everyone else in culture. No, what it simply means is that we truly believe that sexuality is sacred because it's designed by God. And we believe that the greatest value in life is found when we keep what God called sacred. Well, we keep it sacred. And here God calls us to not even have a hint of sexual immorality, to have not even a hint of sex outside of marriage, outside of of the boundaries or the covenant of a man and a woman together in marriage. A lot can be said about that. But our brokenness and sinfulness will always push us to live outside of God's boundaries. Did you find that about yourself? (laughs) And and there's always a lot of people around that are willing to help with that and encourage with that. Don't you find that too? Not too many people helping you with, you know, good principles and, hey, go to God with this. Nope. Well, I thought of an alternative lifestyle, maybe trying some new, right? And just, no, it's immorality and impurity. What if she's hot? Well, so is hell. I don't know what to say. (laughs) What if we're married in God's eyes? I'm sorry. What if we've known each other for a long time? What if this and that? Yeah, it doesn't fly. Not even a hint. Here in the passage, Paul says, do not engage in, and and he's very emphatical about it, and he gives us a a big junk drawer word, like a category that every immoral thing kind of fits in, right? Friends with benefits and adultery and pornography and everything else that you can think of, all of that fits in the sexual immorality and impurity category, just a big old bucket of brokenness and nastiness. God says not even a hint or you shouldn't even talk about them. That is, that is, ooh, quite a command. Do you know why God's way and design is for a man and a woman in a marriage covenant and everything outside of that is sin? Well, many reasons, but one specific one is actually here in the passage. One of them that I can think of that's not in this passage, it will just ruin your life. (laughs) It will just ruin your life. But let's get back to our our passage. Um, This, uh, this, the one reason that I want to mention because it's in our passage is the fact that this design, God's design for covenant marriage between a man and a woman fits with the command of loving like Jesus selflessly. There's such a beautiful progression in, the, in these verses. Unlike that junk drawer of sexual immorality, this is a safe and beautiful platform to love like Jesus selflessly, your marriage covenant. Our culture points to this ideal, do whatever pleases you. 
Do whatever feels good. And God calls us to do the exact opposite, to live and love selflessly. Don't think about yourself. Think about the other, your wife, your husband. God calls us to a love that keeps sacred the sexuality that he designed. And if we are to be imitators of God, church, if we are to live out our identity in Jesus, then the fullest way to experience that is to have not even a hint of sexual immorality. Apostle Paul goes on to say, but have not even a hint of, of, of sexual immorality in the way you live, but then he says, not even in the way you talk as well. And this is what he says in verse 4. Let's, let's move on. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Ouch. Which are out of place, but instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. He says, don't even joke about it. Don't even make a crude joke about sexuality. Don't even make a crude joke about your friends or about your neighbors or someone who's different than you. He says that's out of place because you are a saint. You are set apart. You're different. You are, if you are to be imitators of God, then live sacredly. Pursue holy living. I think that for a moment we need to let that sink in. That all of us here, I've said this before, but if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saints, we are set apart, we're holy. What does that mean, Ovi, in our passage in a practical way? That means that probably there are conversations in our own families, friends, or with coworkers in our lives that do not match up with the sacredness that God calls us to live by. And we need to repent. And God forgives, and he loves to forgive, and he loves to work at us, and he loves to do all that work in us. But do we understand the command? Do we understand God's heart behind it? So what should we do then, Paul? Okay, you're not letting us do this and this. What, what, what should we live? How should we live then? What's the alternative, Paul? He says, um, Thanksgiving. Okay. And if you're like me and if you read this, Paul's talking about sexual immorality and he's talking about not even joking about these matters and the alternative he gives is thanksgiving that seems a bit odd paul don't you think so i mean if we're thinking about opposites the opposite of sexual immorality and crude joking i'm not thinking of thanksgiving are you <laughs> but here's the here's here's the truth here's the reality let's just let's just lay this out for a moment let's say there's a crude joke going around the office right or maybe and your family kind of keeps evolving in your family reunions and you choose not to take part of it. Good, good for you. And instead, you just start dwelling on what there is to be thankful for. Does that sound too cute for your liking? No, let me continue. But see, what Apostle Paul had in mind, here we go, when he points out to thankfulness, because we have to be faithful to our context, right, to the book of Ephesians, he is pointing us to the first chapter of the book when he explodes in joy and he lists all the amazing things God has done for us in Jesus. All the amazing blessings he lists for us in Christ. That's what he has in mind. Being thankful specifically for what Jesus has done for us. Huh. Thankfulness for the fact that Jesus saved us by grace. 
Thankful for the fact that we are redeemed. Thankful for the fact that we have an inheritance. Thankful, I'm just kind of listing what he, he was given us in chapter 1. Thankful that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Thankful that we are forgiven. Thankful that we were brought into the family of God. Thankful that we have a new identity. I think I'm starting to see where Paul is going with this. And here's the reason and the point he's trying to make. Thanksgiving starts taking our focus off of ourselves and it puts it on God. Huh. And rightfully so. Because the reality is that the view of sexuality in our culture is centered on self. It's centered on my pleasure, whatever feels good, whatever I determine is right. The purpose of sexual sins is to get, not to give. It is the desire to exploit others for selfish ends, not to love selfishly, selflessly. If we are to be committed to imitate God, we ought to pursue holy lives. And part of what that means is that we take the focus off of ourselves and we set our focus on God. And when we do that, church, we will start to flow with thanksgiving. We will start to overflow with thanksgiving, I assure you of that. If we go on to verse 5, Paul says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he gives us a little bit of a parenthesis, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here he, th he throws in greed and covetousness. If you have NIV, I think it says greed and covetousness if you have ESV. And again, I say, Paul, aren't you making some jumps here? Like, why are you bringing these two words? Like, what? I thought you were talking about sexual immorality. You're going from sexual immorality to greed and covetousness? Well, yeah. But the reality is that being greedy or covetous is a desire for more. That's exactly what being greedy or covetous is. It's a continual lust for more. See the connection? It's when you're never satisfied with your wife and your husband, with what you have. You're never satisfied with how you look, etc., etc. And that's where the sexuality of our culture will search and search and search and search. And it comes up empty every single time when it comes to satisfaction. Because the only true satisfaction is found in the sacred design of God. Amen? It's funny because in our day and age, when it comes to greed and covetousness, we call it advertising and marketing, don't we? It's so normal. We just rename things. Coveting is when you're like, oh boy, that's a nice car. I really, really want that. Oh, that's an attractive person. I wish I was beautiful like them. It's when you see desirable things and you long for them in an unhealthy way. And culture and society helps with that all the time. The other word that Paul throws in, since we're kind of, you know, all the words that he's throwing in, he talks about idolatry. Idolatry, and he used it to describe someone who's greedy and someone who's covetous. He says here in verse 5, that is an idolater. A pastor described our hearts as a continual factory of idols. Do you relate? Our hearts are continually creating idols in our lives. And this is what this pastor defines an idol as. It is basically anything that is more important to you than God. Anything or anyone like that in your life right now? 
anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination, your time, your money, more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give you. Anything like that in your life? Do you have any idols in your life? Or maybe I should say with all due respect, because I include myself in that, how many idols do we have in our lives? <laughs> Anything that you hold on tightly to give you satisfaction? The satisfaction that only God can give you? Is it like escape, escapism? Like, I don't know. I found myself kind of watching a lot of Idaho and Montana videos on YouTube because I love those states. And I don't know. There's some that, and I watch it for like the last two, three months, I'll be honest with you. When we, we put the kids down and we have like, I have like half an hour, like, boom, Idaho. I know so much about Idaho. If you want to move, let me know and I'll guide you. And I'll <laughs> but something that happened in my heart, like, hmm. I would so love to move there and buy some land and all, and buy some more guns and whatever the case is, right? I don't know. I'm just saying when I, when I was kind of going like, wow, huh, is that an idol, Lord? If we are to be imitators of God, part of what living holy lives or living sacredly means, it means continually laying down our idols, I would encourage you to do the same, to, to make a regular practice of laying down idols in your life because we are continually making them and continually holding on to them. And I'm one to confess, I'm continually making idols in my, in my life that I want satisfaction from, that if taken away from me, life would crumble a little bit. I'd be heartbroken. And I need to lay down these idols, and so do you, church. Because partly what it means to live a holy life, partly what it means to imitate God, is to deny ourselves and pick up our cross on a daily basis and follow Jesus. Now, in plain English, denying yourself means in our context to give up the things that we hold on to, our idols. So we are called to love selflessly like Jesus, to live sacredly. And the third way we are to imitate God, the third way we are to live out who we are in Jesus is to shine the light of the gospel. To shine the light of the gospel. And we see this in the following few verses. Let me just, let's just continue reading from 8 to, we'll just go to 13. For one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And, and, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. This is the reality for us who have put our trust in Jesus. That we were once darkness. No one, no one can say, oh, I was born in a Christian home. And No, no, no. You were dark. You were in darkness. All of us were in darkness. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2? Let me remind you. Do you remember what Paul said one time? You were darkness and you were part of those who were dead. Dead. And this is the reality of our salvation. If, you put, if we put our faith in Christ and repent and commit to him, this is your reality. That you were once darkness, but now you are light. That's what, that's what the word says. You are light. Now, here's the nature of light. If we can comment on it just for, just for a quick moment. 
light reveals darkness. Light pervade, pervades darkness. When you turn on the lights, darkness just disappears, right? You've heard that before a thousand times, I'm sure. It goes away. It vanishes. Don't mean to get too cute here, but we actually don't have a way to flip uh, on the darkness. Did you know that? We simply have a way to flip on the light, right? And just darkness just disappears. There's something in there. Because Paul uses this imagery here in the verses to follow. He uses imagery to, to simply describe this. When we take up the calling to be imitators of God, we live out who we are in Jesus. And we have an opportunity, an amazing opportunity, namely when we, we love like Jesus selflessly and we pursue living holy, you will inevitably shine the light of Jesus, the light of the gospel. This is the reality. When we love selflessly like Christ, when we live holy lives and pursue holy living, there is an inherent light about the way we live our lives. Hmm. What we are not called here in Ephesians 5 is to be spotlights. You know, those police spotlights that were on search for saints, and this is not the role of the church, right? I'm not saying, ho, ho, I'm not saying that when you're called to be interviewed on CNN about your religion, that would ever happen, no way, but just saying, and asked if homosexuality is a sin to say otherwise. No, 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 be clear about it. Or when you're asked if you think that Jesus is the only way to heaven to say otherwise. That's not what I'm saying. No, no, no. Speak the truth clearly. Speak the truth concisely. Speak the truth with conviction, but do it in love and in grace. Let me rewind for a moment when it comes to sexuality. There have been people within the church that have used Christianity like the police spotlights that we're not called to be. Right? They go out of their way. They really go out of their way, and they can't wait for an opportunity to call someone out. Hey, that's sinful. Hey, whoa. We already know that. They're in the world. They're darkness. They're dead, you know? Right? You are a sinner. You're... That's not what we're called to do, to go out of our way to do that. We're called to keep sacred what God, what God has called sacred. And we're called to love like Jesus selflessly, loving our neighbors, loving our communities, regardless of what they believe about sexuality, gender, and race. How is that sitting with you? And what do I mean by loving them? Parting with them? Nope. Um... Applauding their sinful behavior? Nope. Loving the unsaved means a deep compassion and mercy towards their lost souls. That's what it means. Out of which you just can't be a bystander anymore. But you're moved inside to reach out to them with the love of God and the love of the gospel. So this is what I'm saying when we love them like Jesus loved us selflessly. And then we live sacredly. We will inevitably shine the light of Christ, the light of the gospel. Then open your mouth because there's power and authority in there and preach the gospel. We've messed up so many times when we preach the gospel and our lives were just broken as broken can be. And there's no, no hint of Christianity or of Christ in them. We ruined so much by that, I believe. God can still use that, sure. But we, we can ruin so much. When we look at verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
Some believe that the deeds we should expose here uh, are those done by our fellow believers, exposing their sinful behavior so that they might repent. We, we can see this in Matthew 18, right, as well. There's definitely truth to that, and we ought to even judge ourselves, Corinthians says, not in a condemning way, but in a, hey, in a, an accountability sort of a way to challenge each other, right? So there's definitely truth to that, and there's definitely a place for that. But if we are to be faithful to our passage here in Ephesians 5, this verse invites us to expose the deeds of darkness done primarily by those who are not Christians. If this is true, how are we to do this? Right? Are Christians to become the beacons of morality in our world and those who point out all the sins and like we said before, no. This passage, I believe, does not tell us to expose the dark deeds of others by publicly denouncing them. Like, yeah, so-and-so did that, and yeah, you know. In fact, the very next verse, verse 12, if you read it with me, it says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. So it seems unlikely that Paul wants to expose these secret deeds by mentioning them out loud. So then he must have another sense of expose in mind. Hmm, I wonder what it is. We expose deeds of darkness, not so much by denouncing, being loud and going in front of television like so-and-so did this, and, but by letting the light of God shine in and through us. We do this by announcing the good news. That's how you just, that's how darkness just fades away. You announce the good news of God's grace in Christ. Because you're already living in such a way that your light can be seen by others. And there's power and authority there. You preach the gospel. And you live the gospel out, basically. That's what you do. In verse 9 of our passage, the fruit of the light, right, is found in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And truth, right? It is not found in mentioning the shameful sins of others. So even if there's a time for us to denounce the darkness in the world, right, our main task as children of light is to let the light of Christ shine in our words and in our deeds. We are to live, church, in such a way that deeds of darkness are seen to be fruitless in comparison to the abundant fruit of light that grows or should grow in our lives. So we aren't called to be spotlights. But in a sense, we're called to be lighthouses, if I can use an analogy, to stand firmly upon that, what God has called sacredly and to love selflessly, just as Christ loved us. And when we do that, we have an amazing opportunity to expose the darkness by presenting the gospel. In closing, there's some debate about this, about verse 14, but let me just kind of read it and we'll end Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isn't that beautiful? We don't really know where Paul took this from, because it's a quotation. Some theologians are saying that it could have been a contemporary baptism song within the early church of his day. How cool is that? They would sing this at baptisms. They would sing, you know, wake up, O sleeper. And I don't know how it goes, obviously, but wherever Paul may have taken this quote from, this is the reality, church. How, how awesome is this? That This is at the end of our passage. This is the invitation to those around us. When we share the gospel, this is the gospel. This is the invitation to our friends and our family members who don't know Jesus. And as they see us, what? 
loving selflessly and living sacredly and then inevitably shining the light of Jesus, this is the invitation to them. Hey, wake up. Wake up. Rise from the dead. Wake up. Rise from... This is the message that we ought to take to the world. This is an invitation and encouragement that Christ will shine on you. So wake up. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. How awesome is that? I don't know, but this is an awesome, an amazing invitation, opportunity, as we take seriously Ephesians 5.1, to be imitators of God. Some application points, some questions for us to kind of let simmer this week or for the weeks to come. You guys okay with that? And I encourage you to take some time this week and sit before our Father in heaven. Open up his word and let the, let the deep reality of his love for you sink in. And ask yourself, how can I imitate that in my life? In my family, in my marriage, in all of my relationships. How can I love like Jesus selflessly? Ask yourself that. At the same time, I would encourage you to look at your life and ask yourself, am I pursuing holiness when it comes to my sexuality? Am I living sacredly when it comes to the words that I allow to come out of my mouth? And how can I be thankful this week? Hey, something that's got handles. We can, we can hold on to this, right? We can take this with us. How can I be thankful this week instead of filling my speech with crude and unsacred things? How can I put the focus on the Father, on, on, on Jesus instead of myself? I don't know, write some of these down and maybe we'll get into a habit of just texting everyone these application points right at the beginning of the week. That would help, I'm sure. Now, speaking about having the focus on Jesus, let's celebrate communion now. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.